Good afternoon. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm Director of the Institute for Government. And we're delighted to have Karen Jones, First Minister for Wales, here to talk about Brexit and devolution. I was saying to him before, uh, the timing for this is perfect. And he said the timing is always perfect. It's what we're always talking about. And he's going to address us in what I will say, uh, no spoilers, uh, is um, a very hard-hitting speech about what the implications of Brexit are. Um, as, you, as you know, he's been, um, he's been arguing this for some time, um, in, 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 uh, ever since the referendum, and ever since the point we might come on to, uh, much of Wales uh, appeared to vote for Brexit, uh, and yet could be particularly badly hit by it. So many aspects that we want to pull out of this, uh, constitutional, I can see some constitutional experts here, uh, and many about Brexit, and many about the impact on Wales. And with that, I know there are going to be an awful lot of questions, so let's not uh, delay us too much. Very good to have you here. Okay. Floor, the floor is yours. Thank you, Brian. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you for inviting me to speak uh, today. It's good to be back at the Institute for Government. It is, I suspect, my last visit as First Minister, as I will finish on the 12th of December, but hopefully not my last ever. What I wanted to do was to offer some reflections on constitutional issues. That is not perhaps uh, the best introduction to a political speech to a general audience, but I know that in this audience, I hope there will be great interest in uh, what I'm about to say. And in particular, I wanted to focus on devolution-related issues uh, following the enactment of the EU Withdrawal Act. I'm not going to talk about Brexit as such, because my views on that are well known. I'll be happy to repeat them if anybody wants to hear them yet again. But rather, I wanted to make three points arising from the passage of the new legislation. First, I want to say something about the role of the UK government in our constitutional arrangements once the UK withdraws from the EU. Next, I want to talk about the potential vulnerability of the devolved institutions in this new situation. I'll offer some thoughts about the need to reinforce the Sewell Convention within government and for reform in the UK Parliament so that the principle of consent is built into the legislative process. And finally, I'll call for reform of the UK's own intergovernmental arrangements with strengthened political leadership through a statutory UK Council of Ministers as the principal mechanism for better intergovernmental working. Now, in addressing these issues, I will be uh, frequently reaching conclusions very similar to those in the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee's excellent report de uh, on devolution and exiting the EU. Uh, I should explain the first draft of this speech was completed in the week before PAC Act reported. I think it's rather telling that I can come to the same conclusions as a committee chaired by that famous dangerous socialist, Bernard Jenkin. <laughs> now, we're hardly fellow travellers on most political matters, but perhaps the synchronicity on this issue uh, suggests that our conclusions are indeed based on old-fashioned common sense, of which no political party has a monopoly, or perhaps even these days, arguably even a passing interest. I'll leave that for others to decide. But the underlying point is one that we as a government made from day one after the EU referendum. Leaving the EU will transform the context 
in terms of relationships between the four governments of the UK. In response, we have to ramp up our intergovernmental machinery in order to protect the rights of the devolved nations within a strong United Kingdom. Now, I was last year in October 2014, in the immediate aftermath of the Scottish independence referendum. My subject then was the future of the Union. And in the course of that speech, I said this. Let's, talk, let's stop talking about devolution, whether to Scotland or Wales, and let's start thinking about the Union as a whole. And that means England as well. Why? Because devolution has already fundamentally changed the governance of the United Kingdom. So much so that we should stop talking about devolution. What powers can be handed down by a reluctant Whitehall and start talking about the union and the issues we must share with each other. That line, the issues we must share with each other and crucially, who has responsibility for them has been at the heart of the difficulties involved with the passage of the Withdrawal Act. The UK's withdrawal from the EU means that once any transition period is over, the obligations on the various UK legislatures not to legislate incompatibly with EU law will be removed. In practice, that'll mean some enhancement of devolved legislative powers. But as is well known now, there is a set of issues, up to 26 in total, where it's generally accepted that UK-wide policy frameworks should be established in legislation, at least in part, after withdrawal. Those frameworks will require some constraint on individual governments and legislatures' freedom of action in the interests of a common UK legal framework where that's needed for the greater good. There are a further 82 matters where there may be benefit in establishing formal non-legislative arrangements between administrations. These, among others, are, to use the language of my 2014 address, the issues we must share with each other. The governance of the UK can no longer be seen in binary terms with separate spheres of devolved or reserved matters. And it should be recognised as a joint project between the various administrations. By recognising that reality of interdependence, I believe we can strengthen the UK. The public supports the principle of devolution, but people are impatient when different governments argue with each other. Now, it's fair to say that this summer hasn't shown our politics in a particularly positive light. Now, whilst political disagreement is a healthy part of a healthy democracy, endless quarrelling with no resolution surely is damaging. People are already fed up of politicians talking to themselves about themselves. And we need to get on with the job we were elected to do, governing, changing the world for the better. The debate about Brexit has become polarised ugly and small. But we could be talking about opportunities to do things we couldn't do before. And it presents us with a chance to rethink the union and adjust the balance of power between England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. With public trust in politicians and the institutions of government at an all-time low, we have to show we're committed to serving our citizens' interests through effective intergovernmental cooperation and collaboration. 
And I have to say that I believe by working together as equals across borders and party lines, we can begin to rebuild trust with the electorate. After all, devolution is a joint project between Wales, England, Scotland and Northern Ireland. It's a relationship of interdependence and shared governance. But of course, it's relied on the assumption of the UK's continuing membership of the EU. That world is about to go and we are nowhere near being prepared for what happens next. It's one of the great mysteries of modern constitutional politics that whilst the UK has long possessed some of the finest minds on the subject, and indeed those minds have written constitutions for other countries, our own governance arrangements are a complete shambles. Whilst our lawyers and academics have helped to design new democracies around the world, our own constitution, such as it is, is held together with chewing gum and string. Now that approach has been unsatisfactory for years, but with Brexit, it could become catastrophic. Already, we find ourselves in a totally new political environment. And the traditionally antiquated Westminster and Whitehall approach to change has now become dangerously pedestrian. Where decisions are made, they are short-term, they're patchy, and they're tactical. An ability or even a desire to govern with anything like a long-term vision and competence has been sacrificed on the altar of expediency. And nowhere is this more true than in the handling of our democratic structures and governance arrangements. And it raises a fundamental issue about the role of the UK government in the future. In the debates on what became Section 12 of the Withdrawal Act, the UK government insisted that it must be for UK institutions to have ultimate responsibility for these matters. So that's not a, an approach that suggests shared governance to me. It's an assertion of central responsibility and control. Now, from our perspective, <laughs> this risks undermining the devolution settlement. It's fair to say, following intense negotiation, we resolved the tension through an intergovernmental agreement that the UK government's residual powers will only be exercised in extremists and subject to important procedural constraints. The problem was this. The UK government took the view that powers would return from Brussels straight to London and it would then decide when and if those powers would come to the devolved institutions, even in devolved areas. In the meantime, the UK government could do what it wanted and the devolved institutions couldn't. And that wasn't a level playing field because, of course, it meant uh, that anything could be done in uh, Whitehall and Westminster and nothing could be done uh, even in devolved areas where people voted for responsibility to be with the devolved institutions. Nothing could be done in those devolved institutions uh, if the original plan of the UK government had gone ahead. And perhaps this is analogous to the role that a central government would play under a federal constitution, exercising what an American might recognise as a commerce clause type of power designed to facilitate interstate trade. But of course the problem is the UK government doesn't operate exclusively at federal or UK level. It is simultaneously the government of the UK and the government of England. That is the ultimate conflict that exists within our system. How can the devolved administrations have confidence then that the interests of England will not be prioritised by the UK government? That is the issue that we face. We had a situation with Section 12 where the UK government could legislate as it wanted to for England. 
we in Wales could not legislate for what we wanted to do in Wales. That was the, the, the playing field that was, that was not level at the time. And how can we have trust in an intergovernmental disputes procedure that leaves the final decision-making responsibility with the UK government? So, for example, if we have a dispute with the UK government, the dispute is resolved by the UK government. It's like being an advocate where you find that the advocate on the other side in court is actually the judge as well. That's the situation that we find ourselves in. It was most acute when we raised great concerns about the money, the billion pounds that was given to Northern Ireland, driving a coach and horses to the ballot formula, which was completely ignored. Ourselves and the Scottish Government raised this as a dispute through the current intergovernmental machinery. Not just was that dispute not resolved, but the UK Government wouldn't accept there was a dispute at all. So in other words, whether or not a dispute even exists is entirely down to whether the UK government accepts it exists. Now clearly, that's not a situation or a system that will stand the test of time. So my first point then is that assertion by the UK government of its ultimate responsibility for the issues we must share with each other within the union must inevitably raise fundamental questions in the future about its dual role as the UK government and government for England. I just don't believe that ambiguity can continue. There'll have to be a clearer demarcation, both publicly and within Whitehall, of the differing responsibilities the UK government has for England and the UK as a whole. That's got to be in the interest of clear accountability and public confidence. It should form part of the review of intergovernmental arrangements that's currently underway. Let me turn then to my second set of issues. Where does the passage of the Withdrawal Act leave the devolved institutions under the UK Constitution, in my view, potentially more vulnerable than before. In practice, our autonomy within the devolved sphere is secured only by UK institutions' adherence to the Sewell Convention, which requires the UK Parliament adopting on a continuing basis a self-denying ordinance. It will not normally legislate on matters within devolved competence without the relevant devolved legislature's consent. But as we know, of course, from the Miller case, the convention is not legally enforceable. Its observance is purely an obligation in the political sphere. Now, we were able to give consent to the bill, which became the Withdrawal Act, because of the intergovernmental agreement with the Welsh, between the Welsh Government and the UK Government about how the relevant powers will be used. The Scottish Parliament refused consent, but the UK Government and Parliament went ahead anyway. So the Act applies to Scotland just as it applies to Wales. So the Scottish Parliament's autonomy in respect of matters within devolved competence has been overridden. Whither the Sewell Convention, if that is to be established practice in the future. And that's a concern to us in Wales as well, and I hope to fair-minded people in England. Now, the Convention has been incorporated into devolution legislation for both countries, but if Sewell really no longer applies, that Convention will quickly die. It's one reason why the devolved institutions now appear in practice significantly more vulnerable than before. In other words, we find ourselves in a situation where we will be asked if we uh, will give our consent, and if we don't, the UK Government will plough ahead anyway. It's a kind of... Uh, Doctrine of limited sovereignty, almost. Those of you familiar with the Brezhnev doctrine, doctrine uh, <laughs> will know from the year 1960s. You can do what you want as long as uh, we agree with it. For better or worse, and I'm clear it's for worse 
Our constitutional practice is currently based on the Dicean concept of parliamentary sovereignty. And so the UK Parliament can't legislate to bind future parliaments. Uh, and so the Sewell Convention can't be made under our current arrangements legally enforceable. What then do we do? Well, I make two suggestions, one about the UK government and one about Parliament. If we accept uh, that a residual discretion for the UK institutions to proceed with a bill absent of that consent will always be a future of the Union's constitution, then we need to build in proper safeguards. Because at present, it's entirely at the UK government's discretion to identify what an abnormal situation justifying the UK Parliament proceeding without consent actually is. In my view, we need to understand more clearly the circumstances when the UK government can argue that it's legitimate for the lack of devolved consent to be overridden. So I suggest that the governments of the UK need to negotiate a new memorandum of understanding, setting out the circumstances and the criteria under which the UK government might in extremis proceed with its legislation, notwithstanding a lack of devolved legislative consent. That's got to be addressed as part of the current review of intergovernmental arrangements. Only already specified circumstances should allow the UK government to proceed without consent. We have to have a clear structure of rules to give devolved institutions greater confidence in the legitimacy of the process. But we also need to think about how the UK Parliament itself works when faced with a bill of which consent has been refused, and in particular how it should deal with the matter. Neither House of Parliament extraordinarily was given any real opportunity during the final stages of the withdrawal bill to consider the implications of proceeding without the consent of the Scottish Parliament. That surely must be wrong. And in the future, these matters must be handled with greater respect for the views of the devolved legislatures. Now, it can be extremely difficult for a devolved legislature to make its consent decision at a time when it will have any influence on the decisions the UK Parliament has to make. So, it's sensible that at an early stage in the parliamentary legislative process, the devolved legislatures should have an opportunity formally to register potential areas of disagreement so that amendments can be brought forward to address those concerns. Additionally, the legislative process needs to be adjusted so that a proper opportunity is given to each House during the final stages of a bill's consideration to consider whether it wishes to proceed with a bill when devolved legislatures have refused consent. The UK government should have to justify to both Houses of Parliament why it's moving ahead without consent. Now, a convention could be established, for example, that such bills should normally have a sunset provision. That would mean, even if legislation must remain in place, Parliament is given a further opportunity to consider the matter afresh once the sunset period has expired. In summary, then, the advantage of early intervention is the clarity that it would give devolved administrations about when to consider the question of consent. And the additional stage I propose that the end of the legislative process would give the UK Parliament a specific opportunity to consider the constitutional implications of allowing the bill to proceed to royal assent without devolved consent. Now, these are two linked reforms. 
First, a clearer specification of the circumstances when refusals of consent can be legitimately overridden. And second, a more explicit stage of parliamentary consideration of the implications of proceeding regardless. Now, those changes would breathe much needed new life into the Sewell Convention. And I hope that the UK government, which uh, expresses itself to be supportive of devolution, will recognise the importance of that. But the devolved institutions are becoming more vulnerable for another quite different reason now that the Withdrawal Act will be giving effect to Brexit. Now, as is well known, the Brexiteers say that one of the great advantages of Brexit for the UK will be the freedom to pursue an independent trade policy and to negotiate new bilateral trade arrangements. And that was never envisaged when the devolution settlements were put in place. And those agreements may well have significant implications or repercussions for matters within devolved competence, agriculture being the most obvious example. We've all heard of chlorine-washed chicken and hormone-infused beef. doesn't sound like a very appetising menu, but those phrases are passing into common use. And hitherto unused powers, which combine the actions of devolved administrations when they might impact on the UK's international obligations, are suddenly taking on huge Brexit-shaped significance. These powers render the devolved institutions more vulnerable to UK government interventions in the devolved sphere. sphere rather. In other words, suggesting that if anything touches on international relations, then it's not devolved. That's an enormous area of restriction on competence in practice. How do we mitigate this then? Well, the UK government's future trade policy has to be developed with the active participation of the devolved institutions, subject to oversight by a new committee of the Joint Ministerial Council focused on the UK's international trade. As the UK develops a new international trading capacity, we have to put in place machinery that reduces the likelihood uh, of conflict between the governments of the UK. That, to me, makes perfect sense. And so to my final topic the reform of intergovernmental arrangements. Now, as you will know, the last uh, plenary meeting, or many of you will know, the last plenary meeting of the Joint Ministerial Council in March mandated officials to review our existing intergovernmental working arrangements, including the Memorandum of Understanding, and to report back early next year. That, that year, that review is not before time because there hasn't been a fundamental reconsideration of those arrangements since devolution began in 1999. That was a very different world. We need to have a joint ministerial council that's something more than everybody turning up and complaining, which is what it is at the moment. It needs to be something that's far more positive than that, far more engaged than that. It needs to be an organisation where matters of uh, common interest are not just discussed, but decided. And that's not what the JMC does. It doesn't say anything at all. Uh, and that's where the change has to come. There's literally no point to an interministerial process where nothing really happens and people complain about the fact that nothing really happens. That, that takes us nowhere and that has to change. Now, the one thing that has to be emphasised is that this isn't an abstract constitutional issue. There's a huge range of matters currently agreed upon an EU level that will require effective joint decision-making between the governments of the UK, from organ donation standards to intelligent transport systems, emissions trading to Zootech. The current arrangements just can't bear the weight of the substantial business uh, that would need to be addressed. And as we address these issues, it's imperative that the arrangements we make for this new world of shared governance 
maintain the confidence of all parts of the UK. And that requires that clear demarcation of the role of the UK government in relation to the Union and in relation to England. It'll also require a systematic new approach to oversight, scrutiny and, of course, appointments to public agencies. And the imminence of Brexit makes the task more imperative and, to my mind, more possible. As the advisor to President Obama, Rahm Emanuel, once said, you never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that is an opportunity to do things that you didn't think you could do before. And that's where we are now. And what I think we should do now, uh, which we couldn't do before, is secure a root and branch reform of our machinery of intergovernmental arrangements to meet the new challenges that the post-Brexit world will bring. Last year, we as a government published a paper calling for the replacement of the JMC with a decision-making UK Council of Ministers, as I said, that would oversee existing interministerial forums such as the Finance Minister's Quad, as well as new entities such as the one we propose for international trade. It's the solution we're actively pursuing to the exam question that has been set for us by the JMC itself. We must construct a new key component of the UK Constitution which truly recognises both the needs of the whole as well as the needs of the individual parts. And Brexit will result in the need for more and more effective intergovernmental working on, to use my earlier language, the issues that we must share with each other. And that requires fundamental reform and a new approach. So the time's come for a reformed machinery of intergovernmental relations founded on statutory provision. The foundation of the system should lie in public law with greater transparency and accountability and better public understanding, crucially, resulting from that. So, coming to a conclusion. I understand that the ideas I put forward today might be thought quite challenging. But in reply, I say this. These are remarkable times. I have never known... I've, I got elected in 1999. I've been in government for 18 years, which is why I'm so great. I've been First Minister for nine years. But I have never seen a time in politics that is so febrile, that's so unpredictable, where things can go wrong very, very quickly unless action is taken to ensure that they don't. And that's why we need to do something now. We know that unless something remarkable happens in the next few weeks, the UK will be leaving the EU next year because the Withdrawal Act says so on the devolution settlements and in terms of much of our machinery and practice of government within the UK, we know they've assumed the UK's continued membership of the EU and that world's going to go to be replaced by... Uh, who knows? Who knows? And it's in these times of enormous uncertainty that it will be foolish to rule out ideas just because they represent a radical break with the past. It's rightly been observed that the British approach to constitutionalism might best be described as one of make-do and mend. And one of the consequences of that pragmatic approach is that just enough, just enough, is done to address the particular issues of the day rather than thinking about the future. I've seen it more often than not. You know, not what do we want things to look like in 10 years, but how can we resolve an acute problem that we have before us now? I don't think we can continue in that vein. When it comes to our constitutional architecture, I'd like this to be a little less changing rooms and a little more Christopher Wren. Let's think about the future. So what then is our duty now as practising politicians and concerned citizens? How do we face the future boldly? 
to challenge the conservatism, small c, of previous constitutional thinking, to be imaginative and to be brave. By strengthening devolution, we strengthen the union. And that means we need to face up to Ram Emanuel's challenge. Let's not let this crisis go to waste. So I hope that the ideas I put forward today can contribute to meeting that challenge. And I look forward, perhaps with some trepidation, to your questions. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. That, uh, all right, you made a tremendous pitch. Uh, let's not waste this crisis. Let's use it as a chance to do something about the Constitution in a more systematic, a more Christopher Wren-like way than we've done in the past. There were some smiles over there, at least, when you talked about chewing gum and, um, and string. Um, what's going to make this urgent for the government, though? I mean, you've said, look, this is a good, uh, you know, a good time to do it. And you've talked about all the strains that Brexit uh, is going to uh, place on existing uh, devolution arrangements. But uh, the government uh, has plenty of things to do at the moment, including working out what it's going to do about Brexit. What is it about the, 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 you know, the coming year or so that is going to make this kind of thing really inescapable? Well, it's already inescapable. We've sp just spent a year in uh, intensive discussions with the UK government about where powers lie. Mm. Uh, after they uh, come back from, from Brussels. The, the initial view the UK government took was highly Westminster-centric, and I'm not sure if they, they had a majority of uh, more than 100 in the House of Commons that they would have taken the view they've taken now, but the arithmetic has driven them that way. Yet there are so many areas that will need to be uh, looked at at a UK level, but would, which will need the input of all the UK governments. Let's take agriculture, for example. Mm, well, I, mean, I was thinking as you're talking, yeah. tr trade and agriculture have to yeah. be one of the big ones. Well, uh, agriculture has devolved. Yeah. Everything is either European or Welsh. Yeah. So there's no UK yeah. involvement in agriculture. So yeah. we have to make, but, but in order to preserve the UK's own internal single market, there has to be a way of ensuring that we all operate to a common framework. Now, mm. the UK government's uh, way of suggestion of doing that at the start was we'll hold all the powers to stop you doing anything but we can do what we want and we said mm. no 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 let's all agree let's all agree that we mm. won't let's put those powers into a cupboard over there and we'll all agree not to use them until we've all agreed on how they actually work and that's where we are now same with fisheries you know the fisheries mm. the UK exists in terms of territorial waters but the reality is the UK has devolved its territorial waters there are Welsh waters there are English waters that needs to be resolved who who has what quota in what in, in whose waters so all these things have to be resolved in the future. Hmm. And perhaps the one that's most important... And as you say, they start coming up pretty quickly. Once the UK yeah. has, has, has left the European Union, they, they're going to be coming up day have. by day. Well, it's yeah. state aid. We don't know what the state aid regime will be in the yes. future. Now, if the UK is not part of the EU state aid regime in the future, what is the state aid regime? Does the UK have a state aid regime? Now, I'd argue it has to. There has to be a set of rules. Was, you, don't, you don't get um, an, a, a market that works properly. And in those, if you don't have rules, the biggest always wins. We're not the biggest. Well, so if there are state aid rules... When you say... You, you, you mean there have to be rules uh, defining when state aid can be used. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and what's fair and what's not fair. Yeah. If the UK is to have its own state aid rules in the future, they have to be drawn up. Drawn up by whom? It can't be the UK government. Hmm. It has to be everybody who then polices those rules. It has to be a court. The, the ECJ does it at the moment. The Supreme Court could probably do it within the, within the UK. All these things are not matters that will emerge in years to come. They're already with us. And the, the Brexit process is not just about getting the relationship right between the UK and the EU. It's about getting the relationship right between the countries of the UK. 
Where are Wales and Scotland on these issues? Um, because Wales and Scotland didn't, didn't have identical views on the withdrawal bill. And you know, do, do you feel you've got um, a natural and complete ally there, or are you um, arguing for something different? Well, the, the constitutional journey that the Scottish government sees is very different to ours, clearly. I mean, they believe in independence. We don't. Uh, we do share a huge amount of common ground. Our view was on the intergovernmental agreement with the UK government that it was sufficient. If it's kept to, I mean, that's hugely mm. important. The Scots took a different view. But on many other issues, you know, we, we face the same challenges and we work together, even though you know, we know that ultimately the, the end game, as it were, for the two of us is quite different. Mm. And the absence of a Northern Ireland government at the moment cannot be a help for the kind of pitch you're making. Well, Northern Ireland has no voice. It's, it just has no voice. You, you can't seriously expect uh, a minister in London to represent Northern Ireland when they, they don't know anything about the place. They, they're not from the place. My wife's from Belfast. Uh, you know, her family are all mainly in Northern Ireland. And, and there's a real feeling in Northern Ireland now of despair with their own politicians, actually. And it's, it's across the board. It's not any party. When I was there last week, there were silent protests around Northern Ireland demanding the restoration of the executive. Uh, you know, people can't understand why there's no executive, where politicians are still being paid. You know, that was what I had all the time on. You know, it's, it's, it's not a, politi- a party political issue, but people really feel it. The Northern Ireland doesn't have a voice. And it is, you know, it, it does mean that, that there's a different dynamic then in, in discussions we have with the UK government because Northern Ireland are there. Mm. Um, no, no, very well put in it, indeed. Um, has, has, it's just a step to um, devolution more broadly, perhaps. Would you argue, looking back 20 years, that it's been good for Wales? Absolutely. I mean, the one thing it's given us is confidence. Confidence. People in 97, we had our referendum in 97, people were convinced that it was, it was beyond us to have any measure of self-government. It's given us a far, far better profile in the world. I mean, we, mm. last year we had the best foreign direct investment figures for 30 years. Mm. Unemployment is close to the UK average. That was, I mean, that's not been the case for many, many, many years. Mm. And if you look at the opinion polls... No, that's quite recent that it's come up that sharply. Yeah. And it has come up, and that's been very widely reported. But um, it, it, Don't, don't you mean? And, and employment. Unemployment's good, yes. Yeah. Come down, yeah. yes. Um, the, and also, if you look at the opinion polls, people are hugely supportive of devolution. Mm. They, they think that, the, um, as it soon will be, the Welsh Parliament should have more powers than any other institution. Mm. So it shows that what, be, what began as a very, um, uh, very weak baby back in 1999 has become quite a strong adult. Uh, and you know, people in Wales are, are very happy with the concept of devolution. Mm-hmm. They want more powers. I mean, we saw an example of this in 2011 where we had the referendum on powers that were, went well beyond what anybody envisaged in 1999, and it was won by a two-to-one majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, from next year, we'll have, a pow- have powers over a third of income tax. We already have mm-hmm. what, what's called in England stamp duty, what we call um, uh, land transaction tax. All these things would have been unheard of 20 years ago. People wouldn't have accepted them. No, they see it as completely normal. Yeah, the, the sustained area of criticism has been uh, public services and, and some areas of their, of their performance. And that, you know, that, that's what, well, I mean, where the, the Assembly has had a... But, I mean, England's not exactly a rose garden. I mean, we see social services collapsing in England. And they're not collapsing in Wales. And under mm. pressure, of course mm. they are, because money is tight. Mm. In health, our outcomes are pretty similar. I mean, they, they've been used by, by the press in London to try and show that Wales is doing very, very badly. Yeah, there are some areas where there needs to be improvement. Of course there are. You can't say everything's marvellous. Uh, education outcomes, the same. We know, of course, you can't compare education because the, the, the qualification system is different. Schools are funded in a, in a different way. But I come back to the point that I made before, that, that if you look at the polls, if you look at people's views on devolution in Wales, they never go back to the way it was. 
in the days when we had a Secretary of State who'd come down for half a day mm. uh, and then disappear back to, um, back to Westminster. Mm. Uh, one of the but you still come back to the point, I mean, it's one of the, the, the poorest parts of, uh, not just of the UK, but mm. of, uh, of Europe, which is why it kept getting uh, grants from that. And uh, you talked about getting more tax uh, raising powers, mm. but it's got a, a you know, weaker tax base than many other parts that's true. of the UK. No, that's true. Yeah. Is all that going to be positive? The, the, the advantage of tax varying powers is not that we would actually want to use those powers mm. in the short term. It's giving us a revenue stream and guess we, should, we can borrow. Because mm. we couldn't borrow it. We mm. just couldn't borrow. So there were some projects that couldn't go ahead because we couldn't borrow money. Uh, England could, Scotland could, Northern Ireland could, and we couldn't. So mm. that, that had to be... Uh, Sorted. It was sorted, and we accepted the um, the view that, that we had to have a revenue stream of our own in order to um, uh, to finance the the borrowing, which 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 is perfectly sensible. Uh, if you look at where Wales has gone now compared to where it was, I mean, we, we, the investors we're getting in now, Aston Martin, mm. for example, giving you know, uh, the, the money's going to Airbus. The fact that Tata is still there, I, I think Patalbo would have closed mm. in the days before devolution because mm. there'd be nobody there to advocate the case. Mm. Uh, for the steel industry in Wales, the way that we did. We put money on the table, mm. uh, and that's why Patalba uh, is still there. And the one example I always give, now I'm supposed, just suppose everybody know, uh, knows about, what happened, uh, about this, when I was Rural Affairs Minister, uh, in the aftermath of foot and mouth, there was a scare about, a sh- bear with me on this, right, a sheep disease <laughs> called scrapie. And it was widely believed that there was a link between scrapie and CJD in the same way there was a link between BSE mm. and CJD. Mm. And DEFRA at the time uh, sampled uh, some sheep brain that, that was being kept in storage, and they found, uh, to their, in their minds, that there was a link between TSE, Scrapey, and CJD. We challenged this uh, because the, the outcome would have been that every sheep would have been slaughtered. Mm. We challenged it and said, look, this, go back and double-check. They went back and double-checked and found that actually the sample was cattle brain. Right? <laughs> And got it wrong. Now, the point is this: if we hadn't been there to challenge, and nobody would have challenged it in the days of, of, the, of the Welsh Office, if we hadn't been there to challenge that, there, a disaster would have unfolded on uh, on farming ranches in Wales, but elsewhere. So it shows that you do need an element of challenge as well in order to make sure the UK government doesn't do daft things. Mm. That's um, that, that's quite some story, which. Uh... I'm sure the IFG will remember. The biggest threat to sheep farming in Wales at the moment um, is probably Brexit, the removal of subsidies and, uh, uh, and uh, failure, as it might be, uh, um, of those subsidies to be made up by anything uh, in the block grant. Um, what, what are you doing then um, well, to defend that? If we talk about the block grant, the block grant has, has become completely indefensible in its current form. Barnet is, is completely indefensible. It, it isn't a needs-based mm. formula. Mm. It was a needs-based formula in 1979. It's not a needs-based formula now. And when it's convenient for the UK government to do it, it ignores the Barnet formula. Mm. And so the billion pounds that was given to Northern Ireland included funding for health and education, which is supposed to come out of Barnet. Yeah, we, again, as I said before, we took that as a dispute to the JMC, and the UK government said, no, there's no dispute. Sorry. So we couldn't go any further with it. So when it's convenient... The Barnet formula and the funding systems can be undermined by the UK government acting mm. capriciously. Mm. Like, well, we all know what they did. It was due to politics, but acting capriciously. That has to change. So Barnet needs reform. That's the first thing. Wales well, got a, you know, a bad deal out of it compared to Scotland. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, we, we, you know, we do better than the English regions, but Scotland does ridiculously well out yeah, of but it. I'm not going to sit here and defend Barnet. I, absolutely yeah. not. But the point is, um, you're right, you've got sheep farming yeah. uh, in peril well, at the moment. Um, let's, let's talk about... You won your scrapey battle... Um, 
what happens next? Yeah. Well, the problem is that after 2022, there's not a single penny mm. uh, of European funding available mm. and nothing has been uh, suggested as an alternative. Now, mm. the people of Wales were told that we wouldn't lose a penny of funding if we left uh, the European Union. I see no uh, evidence of that promise being kept. Mm. Now, £260 million a year comes into uh, farming in, in the form of European subsidies. Now, well, we haven't got that money. We, we can't find £260 million. Now, no resolution has been found to that yet. M my solution is this. The, new, that the Treasury sets aside an equivalent amount of money to what the UK gets now, and we distribute it in the same way as we do now. In other words, the same quantum uh, and in the same way. That, and also you mean outside the same amount of farming, of, same amount of regional development? And, yeah, and, and outside of Barnet, because yeah. the, 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 with agriculture particularly, if we were funded in terms of agriculture along Barnet lines, we'd see a 70% cutting of funding. So that would need to be done. And none of these things were thought through at all mm. at the time of Brexit. So I, and people are now beginning to worry about this, farmers particularly, because they know that at the moment, in just over three years' time, there'll be nothing. Mm. There'll be no money at all. Uh, in terms of economic funding, economic development funding, we do have structural funds at the moment. Our ambition was not to qualify for structural funds in the future. We don't want to keep on qualifying mm. for the highest level of funding, but we'd have had a transitional arrangement as everybody else has done, that would have created a soft landing once we'd left the, left the structural funds regime. Well, again, that's gone flying out the window. So at the moment, potentially, we are more than £600 million in our pocket. Mm. Well, knowing that, uh, knowing what we know now, do you think Welsh people would have voted or would vote again in another referendum as heavily for Brexit as they did before? Well, it was about the same as the rest of the UK. If you wanted... If you wanted my, my prediction, I'd say if we had a referendum now, there was a, it would go the other way, but I don't think it would be a massive change. Uh, I think it's mainly because... Oh, you think it would go the other way? Yeah, but I'm not saying it would be you know, a massive... Yeah. Yeah, I think it might yeah. be you know, 53, 47 the other way. Yeah. Because there are some people who haven't yet seen the effect of Brexit, they still hold mm. their views, mm. but there are, I think, enough people now who are sufficiently concerned that what they were told, which is mm -hmm. there will be a free trade deal like that, the German car manufacturers mm. uh, will, will make sure there's a deal. None of these things have happened. And I think there are enough of those people to switch the result the other way. Mm. But of course, there isn't a re another referendum. Mm. So you know, the referendum has, has happened. Mm. So whether or not there will be a different result now is, is, is academic, mm. given the fact that, that we had it two years ago. Mm. Going back to your constitutional points, um, you've talked in the past about wanting a constitutional convention to mm. uh, pull in all these things. Is that uh, uh, something you're immediately calling for, or is that a kind of a second... It's, it's part, well, the, the review into government machinery is part of it, to yeah. my mind. We yeah. just can't carry on as we are, where we have one government that's sort of mm. kind of federal and kind of not, mm. uh, where we have where all power stems from uh, from Westminster. I mean, we should be looking at uh, recognising there are different centres of democratic legitimacy across the UK. Mm. Now, what does that mean? People will say to me, "Are you saying that parliamentary sovereignty should no longer govern the constitution?" And my answer is yes. I don't think it should. Uh, I think the idea that all power comes from Westminster is outdated. What then is the alternative? We look at Canada, you know, stable, prosperous country. It's not descended into chaos. Sovereignty is pooled mm. between the mm. provinces and the and the federal government. Now, if Canada can do that, there's no reason why we don't have, what we have to stick to uh, a concept that is many centuries old that may have worked in the past, but with devolution mm. in the long term can't work. Mm. I suspect many people here may agree with you, and uh, our, our work at the Institute on Devolution, um, led by Akash Pound, has, uh, has very much touched on these issues. Uh, but do you get much support from the Labour leadership on this? 
Yeah, they understand the, 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 the problem. I mean, the, the problem at the moment is that Brexit eats up so much time in political parties and everything mm. else tends to take uh, a back seat. But everybody knows that there are challenges mm. in terms of the way the UK operates in the future. Thanks. Let's go to some questions. Here. Can you wait for a microphone, please? Well, and, um, and, and also, could you say who you Vern are? Vernon Bolton, King's College London. Well, are you, I'm um, persuaded to speak by your last comment because I think we abrogated parliamentary sovereignty when we entered the European Union. And if we can abrogate it in one direction, we can easily abrogate another. It's Once you've lost it, you've lost it for good, in my opinion. But I wanted to ask two questions about your very powerful speech. Um, the first is about the status in Wales of the Charter of Fundamental Rights, which, as you know, is not being incorporated into UK retained law. And as I understand it, it's no, no, part... No, I'm sorry, can you just speak into the mic? Yes, We're the Charter catching of, half of it. Fundamental Thanks. Rights. And as I understand it, the... Scottish Continuity Bill does incorporate that for devolved matters. And I wonder if the Welsh uh, government would also seek to incorporate that charter insofar as it relates to devolved matters and whether Welsh authorities think it would be lawful to do so. My second question is how, if you were English, would you resolve the ambiguity you pointed to about the UK government being also the English government? Given that the English don't want legislative devolution for themselves, I think... Yeah. Well, the first point, we, we, we would look, I suspect, to incorporate the Charter of Fundamental Rights uh, in the future in devolved areas. There's no reason to my mind legally why we can't do that. Uh, the, the prohibition was on legislating uh, incompatibly uh, with, the, uh, with European law. Now, with that gone, there's nothing to say that we can't introduce European legislation. We could. There's no, there's no bar on us uh, doing it. So uh, that is something I think we could, we could do in the future in terms of devolved areas. The big difference between us and the Scots is justice, of course, uh, and the way that operates. We think justice should be devolved anyway. It makes no sense that, that we have you know, two legislatures in one jurisdiction. I don't know anywhere else where that happens in the world, apart from uh, England and Wales. Secondly, yeah, I don't know what the answer is to the second one. Yeah, I mean, the, England is so big, it's not as if you know, it's Australia. Or it's the US where you know, there are states of wildly different sizes, but you haven't got one state that's five times bigger than the rest. Uh, what is the answer in England? Well, the UK Parliament has tried to address it through English votes on English laws. So that's not clear in terms of the way that that, uh, that operates. Uh, in the absence of, of legislative devolution in England, we come back to this point that there needs to be a very strong understanding of how the UK government will operate in the future in relation to England and just as England and Wales and how it will operate in terms of, of the UK. But we can't, we, it can't surely be right that the UK government is the final arbiter on everything, even a dispute between itself and somebody else. <laughs> because that's where we are at the moment. So I, I think there are ways of doing it. It's never going to be perfect. You know, the, the perfect outcome is you know, devolution all around. But you're quite right to say that the appetite in England is not there. So what I propose today goes some way, I'm not going to say it's a panacea, but it goes some way to providing greater clarity as to what government in London does uh, in terms of how it operates as the UK and how it operates as England. Because bear in mind, there are very few things that the UK government does across the whole of the UK. General taxation, uh, border control, uh, defence, there's not an awful lot less. You know, something is devolved somewhere. In Northern Ireland, employment laws devolved. The different driver licensing system, for example. I mean, there are so the UK government. It's not as if the UK government delivers lots and lots of services across the UK. In fact, it delivers most of its services in England. So you know, that's already happening. 
I don't see any reason why we can't, as part of the review process I've described, look at how we can make it clearer in the future. Great. If anyone next door wants to ask a question, please come and loiter in the doorway and I will find you. Oh, someone here. Thank you. Paul Evans, Clark and House Commons. Um, would the UK Council of Ministers you propose have an interparliamentary assembly body to hold it to account, a role that sometimes vaguely floated for the House of Lords, for example? No, I, I, to my mind, I, I prefer that each individual legislature uh, was fully aware of what was going on and held its own ministers to account. Uh, you know, from my perspective, I, I don't see how I could be held accountable to ministers of Scotland, to, to the Scottish Parliament, for example. Now, you know, we'd have to see how it would work. I wouldn't say absolutely not, uh, but my preference would be that we should... Uh, sorry? Ish. Yeah, I don't think we can say the European Parliament is... is, is is ideal in terms of holding the Commission and particularly the Council of Ministers to, to account. It's stronger than it was, you're right, but I don't think it quite performs the, the function uh, that the UK Parliament does with UK Ministers. Yeah, I'm open to the idea, uh, but the lines of accountability would have to be clear. Interesting. Thank, thanks very much. Over here in the middle. Uh, Thomas Cole from Open Britain. You mentioned uh, just now that if there were uh, another referendum, people in Wales would probably vote to remain in the EU. We saw at the weekend there was a very large event in Cardiff where members from across the political spectrum were calling for a people's vote in the final deal. We heard Francis O'Grady's comments yesterday. Indeed, a number of trade unions come out supporting uh, one as well. Is that something which you'd be able to get behind? Well, I mean, whether or not I think the result will be different is academic. Moment. Now, you asked me a specific question. Do I think a second referendum comes into play at any time? I think it does, and I'll explain the circumstances. First of all, I, I take with an enormous pinch of salt, uh, I don't know, this is not a party political audience, but conservative politicians who say the referendum has happened, it cannot be revisited. Many of those are the very same people who in 1997 in Wales said there has to be another referendum, it's too close. And in fact, in the 2005 general election, the Conservative Party had a policy of another referendum because they felt the first one had been too close, and it went the wrong way from their perspective. And yet with a similar referendum, equally as close, oh, no, no, that can't be revisited. So I think the ground is cut from right underneath them, uh, the, the, the hard Brexiteers, who wanted to rerun the devolution referendum. That said, I think you have to be very, very careful not to appear to be calling for a referendum because the result didn't go your way. I think people, you know, a lot of people will say, well, hang on a second, that, that's not right. So under what circumstances could there be a second referendum? Well, let's say, for example, that there was no agreement in the UK Parliament as to what the uh, final deal should look like. To my mind, that would mean the Prime Minister being defeated. There'd have to be a general election. In that general election, Brexit would be the issue, I suspect. And the advantage in the election is that a number of different questions could be explored at the same time, which a referendum can't do. If, however, the result of that election was equally as inconclusive, how else do you resolve the issue other than by going back to the people who took the decision in the first place and, and offering them a scenario? Now, the big issue to wrestle with is, should there be a, a, would there be one question or several questions? I don't like multi-question referendums. I think they, they can sometimes confuse people. So there has to be some debate as to how that referendum would be shaped. Would it be, this is the deal, if you don't like the deal, we leave, or this is the deal, if you don't like the deal, we stay. But in those circumstances, that's when I can see a second referendum becoming essential, because, I, because every other way of resolving the issue will have been exhausted. Thanks very much. 
Are there any more over here in the middle? And, and uh, I'm Tony Travers from the London School of Economics. I mean, some of the versions of some of the more radical versions of Brexit that are being debated and pushed very heavily by some of those involved in UK Parliament as we speak would lead to a radically changed version of the UK economy. So with very different trade policy, perhaps a smaller state, this is an opportunity not only for you but for others to change the way that the United Kingdom uh, works for all time, not just in terms of the relationship with the EU. Were there to be such a radical shift in policy as a result of Brexit, how do you think that would work out in Wales, where there's a bigger state relatively than in England, and particularly much bigger than in the south of England, where such a radical change might work, but it would work very differently in Wales and Scotland? How would it feed through into politics there? Well, there are two points. First of all, People voted two years ago for a number of different reasons. It wasn't just about Brexit. Many people said to me they wanted to kick David Cameron, uh, or various other um, methods of assault. Uh, many people said to were protesting against globalization. They didn't put it that way, but they, they, they didn't like the fact they didn't have job security in the way that their parents had done. A lot of older men, the ones who voted for Brexit, wanted to go back to the 70s. In reality, they liked statist solutions. They liked the nationalised industries because although the 70s, I can't remember them, and the orange flared cords out of the way, but I mean, the, the, from their perspective, the 70s were a time of greater equality and well-paid, secure jobs. They don't remember the inflation. That's, that's, that's got to their minds. They would not accept the smaller state. So I think it's, it's, it, for, for those, which you didn't do, but those who advocate the fact that the Brexit vote was for a... Uh, a likely regulated small state, that is not what, people, what many people voted for. And we saw that reflected in the result last year in the general election, uh, where many of those people then voted for a Labour manifesto that was far more radical than anything we'd seen for, for, for many, many years. Uh, and that explains why, to an extent, uh, why, that, uh, why that happened. Uh, what was the other question? Sorry. You asked another question. How would play back into if there were a radical, yeah. you know, tariff-free... Ah, yes, yes, yes. What does it mean? Well, I have, well, I've heard Professor Patrick Minford say that one of the solutions that could be on offer if we were to leave on WTO rules is that we wouldn't have any tariffs but others would. People wouldn't accept that. If I said to the steel industry, well, look, any steel from anywhere can come in here, but you can't sell your steel tariff-free anywhere else. There's no way they'd accept that. Yeah, economics is human beings are not machines. <laughs> you know, people would not accept that kind of economic purist outlook. There's no way they'd accept it. I've said before that, that Brexit done badly carries the seed of the UK's own disintegration. I think it does. You know, there are some opinion polls in Northern Ireland, just opinion polls, that suggest that in the event of a hard Brexit, undefined, then a plurality, if not a majority of people, would vote for union with Ireland. I never thought I'd, you know, that's astonishing to my mind, uh, given my knowledge of the place over the past 25 years. All right, they're just opinion polls uh, and they're snapshots, we know that. But it's an extraordinary change of view in, in that sense. Scotland, you know, it only takes a few percentage points for Scotland to vote for independence. It wasn't an overwhelming vote against, it was, yeah, 56-44, but you switch 6 or 7% the other way, all of a sudden you've got to vote for independence. 
in Wales, well, no, the, 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 the desire for independence isn't there in the same way, mainly because people don't see what it would give us, if I'm honest. You know, would independence make me more Welsh? No. You know, we have our own government, we, we can run most of the things we want, we've got our own national football and rugby teams, which are important to a small nation. It is important for identity. I mean, we won't talk about yesterday, we'll talk about last Thursday if you want, but not yesterday. <laughs> the, and these things are important. So people will say, well, you know, if I had a Welsh passport, what exactly, what exactly would it give me? beyond what I've got now. So it's not a question of people saying, you know, we don't like the idea, it's a question of what would it give to us. You know, people are, a sense of identity is strong. You know, most people identify as Welsh before anything else, but it doesn't translate into uh, a desire for independence. But of course, my fear is that people are driven that way. We live in a world now where people are accepting all manner of strange things that we never thought they would uh, years ago. Then that might start to happen in Wales as well. There's no sign of it, no sign of it. But in the future, who knows what might happen? Brexit done well will strengthen the UK and strengthen the devolved institutions. Brexit done badly, and one example to my mind, from my politics, of Brexit done badly is uh, some kind of you know, some kind of economy, uh, some low tax, low spend economy. I think then you start getting then the UK is in danger. Can I just pick up? And then we've got a couple more questions, but can I just pick up on the point? about how far you think devolution might go in Wales and what it is you think Wales might lose by independence. I mean, you've been describing it in terms of identity, which, oh, which uh, is what these things turn on. But I was wondering whether the financial arrangements that we touched on before yeah. um, and how much we, we, you know, Wales needs money from central government, whether that is also a factor. Well, we're not, we're not supplicants. I mean, bear in mind that we were very major contributors to the UK economy a century ago. Uh, so it's not as if we've, we've always been in a situation where somehow we've been reliant on money. But yeah, there's, there's an element of it. Mm. We would lose it financially if we left the UK, there's no question about that. Uh, and people in Wales will rightly say, well, what, what's, what's the point of taking that risk? What's, what, what's, why would we do that uh, if we're going to lose that financially? Mm. Now, there are some in other parties will argue, well, in time we'd make it up, but you know, it's a bit nebulous. Mm. Uh, and people don't, don't see it that way. And they don't feel... Uh, uh, and this is the problem with the Brexit vote. People in Wales don't feel that their sense of identity and nationality has to be predicated on the existence of a state. Uh, mm. And as a result, mm. you know, Welsh identity and nationality has never driven itself mm. uh, along those, those lines. Mm. What I don't want to see is circumstances arising where people do feel mm. that the only way that they can express that, that identity is through independence. Mm. And to my mind, that would be bad news all around, not just for mm. us, but for the UK, well, obviously for the UK, mm. uh, but for the rest of this island as well. Thank you. Akash. Hi, Akash Pound from the Institute for Government. Um, I was very interested in your thoughts about, as you put it, breathing new life into the Sewell Convention, which is something um, we've been thinking about uh, grappling with a bit as well. And um, I thought the, the specific reforms you, you proposed, um, I can have certainly have some merit and I can see how they might potentially form the basis of a new relationship between Westminster and Cardiff. I just wondered if you thought they were applicable in the Scottish context as well. I mean, given the current situation is that the, the Scottish government has essentially declared that they won't participate in the legislative consent process at all anymore. Um, I mean, the reforms you were suggesting seem to be predicated on, you know, there would still need to be agreement about those basic rules of the game. And I just wonder if 
for, for Scotland, given where we've reached in terms of that intergovernmental relationship, the reforms would need to go quite a long way further in terms of you know, actually providing a, a, some kind of veto in certain circumstances for the devolved bodies if you're trying to, in the end, sort of put the pieces of the intergovernmental system back together. Well, the, the, the heart of the difficulty we have at the moment is, and it applies equally to Wales as it does to Scotland, is that Sewell can be overridden. What's the point of it if it can be overridden? Uh, so that, you know, that, that's the great difficulty. And once you start saying that Sewell can be overridden you know, without any kind of reasoning, you then start to unravel the constitutional framework of the UK uh, with consequences, I think, that would, be, that would be bad and exploited by people who want to see the end of the UK. Uh, how do you deal with that? Well, again, coming back to the point I made earlier, you need to have a very clear set of rules in the absence of wider constitutional reform as to when, when and if the UK government will use those powers. All right, the legislation says it, it will not normally legislate or not normally use... Uh, Parliament will not normally legislate. The UK government will not normally use powers. Well, what does it mean? What does not normally mean? Uh, are we in an abnormal situation? Well, perhaps, perhaps. It depends how you look at it. The whole thing is vague. Uh, and the reason why it's phrased that way, of course, is because the whole devolution settlement is predicated on the fact that power really is all in Westminster. And Westminster has just decided to almost lend some of that power on a, uh, on a permanent basis to the devolved institutions. But, of course, it can exercise any of those powers whenever it wants. You know, it, that's not a, a sensible solution for the future, particularly with, uh, with, with Brexit. We need to have a far clearer understanding of the constitutional arrangement. Uh, we need to have a much stronger application of the Sewell uh, Convention. It needs, to, it needs to be justiciable. It needs to be something that can be decided in the courts, otherwise it's worthless. Uh, it relies on goodwill all round. When that goodwill breaks down, as it has done between Scotland and the UK government on this issue, uh, then of course it doesn't just affect Scotland, it affects us. The only, the only difference between us and Scotland uh, on this issue is that we took the view that what was on the table from the UK government was enough for us to agree to. The Scots took a different view, but the fundamental issue is still there. Uh, and the fact, you know, we could easily have said no to the intergovernmental arrangement, and then we would be in exactly the same position as the Scots. So it's simply, uh, you know, the, the, the fundamental question affects both of us. Uh, it was simply a different approach that we took to, 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 the, um, to the intergovernmental arrangements at the time. Thank you. We've got a couple over here. Uh, Stefanie Bolzen, I'm the London correspondent for the German Daily Welt. Um, aren't there not maybe also some opportunities in Brexit when it comes to um, common agriculture policy and, and fishery policy? Because these were competences, as you said, in Brussels. They are now coming back here, whether than things we were decided in London or in Cardiff. But don't you think there are opportunities for you in the sense of making a more um, customized policy on agriculture and fishery? Well, the money is crucial, first of all. Uh, and you can't look at uh, agricultural fisheries policy unless you look at where your market is. 90% of our food and drink exports go to the single market. Our sheep meat industry couldn't exist without being able to export. It just, it just would fall apart. We saw, it, we saw it in 2001 when they couldn't export because of foot and mouth. Uh, prices went through the floor. So, yes, you can provide a framework of support, but what's absolutely crucial is that you have the fullest possible access to your most important market, which is the single market. 
fisheries is even more acute. I mean, you know, fishing is not a big industry in Wales, it's far bigger in Scotland. Our fisheries area is not that big. But the vast bulk of the fish that are landed in Wales end up in markets in Europe. They have to, because that's what the market is. There's not enough market in the UK uh, to justify it. And that means being able to, if I can put it bluntly, shift the fish as quickly as possible before it goes off between Dover and Calais. And then on from there, any kind of delay at the ports, and all of a sudden you've got a product that can't be sold. So, yes, it is right to say that, that potentially we could have more autonomy in shaping uh, the kind of policies that we would want. But without access to the market, the policies would become redundant because we wouldn't have an industry to, to, to support. The second point as well is that while the UK has territorial waters, in reality, it doesn't. In reality, they're all devolved. So, for example, there will have to be discussions as to what the quota looks like for different boats from different countries in the UK in each other's waters. That has to be done. I've no doubt that the Scottish fishing fleet will start lobbying their ministers to keep English boats out uh, or minimised in terms of their fishing in Scottish waters. And they can do that. You know, that, that's something that, that, that uh, that's pressure that they would come under. We've had a long-running dispute with the UK government, with DEFRA, over, oh boy, the details of it, but over a particular type of fishing quota. Uh, the reason why we still, they say we, it's too big, they want part of it, we've said no. The reason why we still have it is because the Commission are the arbiters. Now, after we leave, all of a sudden the arbiters are the very people who want the quota in the first place. Mm-hmm. And we lose it. So, that, you know, yes, there are opportunities, but to my mind, they are outweighed by the, mm-hmm. the serious challenges that have to be addressed and the lack of a mechanism to do that at the moment. Thank you. And there's one uh, by the fireplace. Um, uh, Richard Wynne-Jones, Cardiff University, Brief Winnie Dog. Um, uh, typically interesting speech, making lots of thoughtful suggestions. Who are your, who's your target audience here? I'm, I'm, I note that you're making the speech today in a context where we see the territorial officers of the UK government possibly at their weakest ever. We heard the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland display her complete lack of qualifications for that post the other day. The Wales office has turned essentially into a vanity project for the Secretary of State. Um, I, I can't see them listening to your argument, isn't it? Uh, isn't it true that until Whitehall actually gets rid of the territorial officers and find some other way of engaging with devolved government, that you're always, or your successors are always going to be making these thoughtful speeches and always ignored by Whitehall, because there is no locus in Whitehall for serious thought about these issues. Well, I, I think that would... Car- part of the audience is yourself, as you know. <laughs> but uh, what is the audience today? Well, it, of course, it's, it's people involved in government, academics... Uh, people with an interest in the constitutional issues. I mean, that's not, you know, it's not something that's going to have resonance amongst the public particularly. Well, maybe who knows, but I, I'm realistic enough not to know that. The territorial offices. Well, it is a question as to what they do. I'm not going to go so far as to advocate they should disappear, but in reality, we, we don't deal directly with them. We deal directly with, with UK government departments. We don't, we don't go through the Wales office. I'm sure they'd like us to do that. We don't go through the Wales office to deal with, um, with, the, with departments in, in Whitehall. Uh, similarly, the discussions uh, on the intergovernmental agreement, for example, were between ourselves and you know, David Lindington, uh, who led for the UK government. It wasn't done by, by the Wales office. So it is an interesting question as, as to what the future of those territorial offices are. They have an advantage, because if, if we're looking for something that we want support on, then... You know, 
like the Tidal Lagoon, that didn't work. Uh, like the billion pound money to Northern Ireland, that didn't work. Uh, but if, we, if we're looking for support, they could potentially be supportive. But in terms of what else they can do, the answer is not an awful lot now. But you're absolutely right. Thinking that, that the territorial offices can be the link between the UK government and the Welsh government is, and the Scottish government is just wrong. Uh, and the, the UK government have realised now, after the year-long negotiation we had with them over the intergovernmental arrangement, that they just can't have it all their own way. That there are other uh, viewpoints and those viewpoints will uh, are strong and have the, op- the opportunity to, to prevail. But what is... I mean, you said when will Whitehall start listening? It has to start listening now. It's already seen what the uh, what the problems are, and unless we address this issue now, we're going to end up not just with great uncertainty over Brexit, but potentially an endless conflict between the governments of the UK, uh, and that is in nobody's interest. We got one here. Hello, <coughs> excuse me. Hello, I'm Ken Thompson from the Scottish Government. Um, you, you said that the existing IGR arrangements aren't bearing the weight that Brexit puts on them, and you made a case for radical change. You also said that the UK government's response tends to be pedestrian and short-term. What will happen if they don't respond, if they're distracted, or if they re- their response is incremental? We won't resolve the issues. The, look, the, the, the Whitehall and Westminster position is one firmly rooted in parliamentary sovereignty. If anything goes wrong, we'll sort it out anywhere in the UK, they see themselves as being able to interfere in anything, devolved or not. They are, you know, that's, that's quite clear from, from the, uh, the attitude that, they, uh, that they've displayed in the past. Well, the danger is that we end up in a situation where many issues are just unresolved. We end up with Brexit, and then we end up then with a battle over funding, a battle over structural, a battle over economic development, a battle over agriculture, a battle over fisheries. We are, we suspect that the Scotland office and what was the Wales office, now the office of the Secretary of State, uh, or the office of the, the UK Government Office of the Secretary of State of Wales, whatever it's called now, uh, will try to become more interventionist in Wales, and they have no right to do so. People of Wales decided long ago that, that, uh, that, that, they, that they shouldn't be involved in these things. Uh, and we will then see, I think, a turf war starting between the devolved governments and the territorial offices. And that, again, is in no one's interest, because the business world is not going to want that. They, they, you know, they, they deal with us. They don't want to deal with, with, with a small department in one talk. Now, the reality is that I don't think this is realised yet. I think the focus has been entirely on Brexit and what the relationship will be between the UK and the EU without really giving much thought to what it means within the UK itself. And I've already outlined what the dangers are of not taking this seriously. Now, it's no good as leaving and then saying, right, now we look at the machinery because we're already be in a position where we have to discuss whether there should be common UK frameworks in some areas, what they should look like, how they should be agreed, and there is no mechanism for doing that. Uh, and that's when you don't just have a problem with Brexit, you have a problem with the UK. And I think we can squeeze in one more. There was one more over here. Right in. Um, Richard McCarthy from Capita. Um, I was just thinking about you, the case that you make is a very powerful one. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to put much money on the fact that the government is going to direct all the resource and time that, to create the settlement that you now want. Um, but it strikes me there's a second tactic, which you're probably going to embark on as well at the same time, which is just to raise the profile of Wales. 
If you think about the story about the transfers of powers to London, it's almost the subsequent powers that were transferred, almost some people thought they'd already gone because the profile had been raised. Now, if you take Brexit as an opportunity, whether you like it or not, as an opportunity to raise the profile of the individual countries that form the union in a way that perhaps didn't sit so easily beforehand. So your chance is almost to create that narrative and actually brand Wales harder and your goods harder that actually force, if you like, positively the improved transfer of power and balance of power between the centre and the individual principalities. Well, I think we're doing that anyway. I mean, there's a second point here uh, which I agree with, and that is how do we raise the profile of Wales full stop? We're doing it. I mean, I was in Berlin uh, last week opening about the, the, the ne- what, one of the next tranche of offices that we're opening around the world uh, to make sure that we have people on the ground looking for investment, looking for trade opportunities, selling Wales culturally as well. Uh, Dusseldorf will open next, Paris is due to open, Doha has opened uh, on top of the, the existing offices that, that we have. So raising the profile of Wales is hugely important because you know, historically the Scots have had a much higher profile than we've had. Uh, and we need to, well, we, we are working hard to overcome that and we obviously need to carry on uh, doing that. But a- again, the point I'd make is this. I could look at this purely in terms of what does this mean for Wales. But coming back to the point I made earlier on in the speech, it's about what does it mean for the Union as a whole. We all need to think about, whenever we live in the UK, what we want the Union to look like. Uh, and it's not so much then a question of raising Wales's profile, it's raising the profile or raising the understanding of the issues that need to be resolved in order for the Union to survive in, uh, in the future. Uh, and that's not simply a question of me saying, you know, Wales, 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 yes it is, I'm the First Minister of Wales, but also about how can we work with each other in order to provide a better structure for the future that reflects the 21st century and not the 18th. We're going to have to stop there, but it's interesting. We've arrived at a point um, which is exactly, um, you know, where we started, which is uh, I I threw a challenge to you and we've had uh, two repetitions of it of uh, what's going to make the government or anyone listen to this. But it seems to me you've given um, a series of very strong answers to that, which is that this is about the union and the union holding together, uh, not just about the immediate outfall of Brexit. Your difficulty, I guess, in PR terms, which we were just discussing, is that you're doing it from the part of the Union most happy or most comfortable at the moment with the Union, apart from England that is. But um, look, a very powerful case uh, that you've made and we're delighted to have had you here today and thank you for answering so many questions with such frankness. Thank you.